Let's turn our Bibles to Philippians. We're taking a small break from Ephesians and doing a little bit of an Advent series, a small build-up to Christmas coming up. And um, last week, uh, Michael preached about Christ's um, three offices, he, that he is our prophet, priest, and king. And that makes him all-sufficient for all of our needs. And, and today we're going to study Philippians 2, very well-known passage, um, verses 1 to 11. And many of the, the, the words we've sung in our songs come from this song. And I think many early Christian or many, many scholars believe that this from verse 5 to 11 was actually a hymn, an early hymn, an early song, because it was written in very poetic language by Paul. And um, you'll see it's just one of those amazing, amazing verses as well. And... Um, Yes, it's great to study this text, which is about the incarnation. And so, yeah, let's read together from Philippians 2, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's a reading of God's word. Father, we want to pour all of our contempt on our pride this afternoon. We ask you, Lord, to teach us what humility looks like. Please search our hearts for any pride in there and selfish ambition and conceit. And I pray that we would have the same spirit of Christ, the spirit of Christmas, leaving your glory, your position, your honor, Lord, in order to die us may we have that same mind that same attitude for one another and for the lost we pray this in jesus name amen beloved paul wrote this beautiful letter to the philippians while being in prison so this wasn't a letter that paul wrote when it was going well with him he was in prison and so naturally the church loving paul would have this natural concern for him whether or not he's okay so imagine just to try to put it in context. imagine if i am imprisoned because of my faith or because of preaching the gospel, all of you would be worrying and wondering, how are you doing, Pastor? Are you okay? And Paul writes this letter in part to encourage them and to say, I'm okay. And I'm actually more than okay because look at chapter 1, verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial God and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. It's Paul saying, don't worry about me. Like, you know, this looks like a failure. It's actually making the gospel go further and advancing the gospel. Isn't that how God is like? An apparent failure is part of the plan. 
That's how God works, right? And that's one of the reasons we should bless God, we should praise Him, is that He really does work all things together for good. Paul says, I'm not just okay in that sense that the gospel is going, even if the worst thing happens to me, even if I die, that's also okay, because to die is gain. So what can happen to us? <laughs> like what can, you see, like we Christians are incredibly blessed to serve a, a sovereign God. To live is Christ and to die is gain. So that's one of the reasons Paul wrote this letter is to encourage these Philippians. But there's another reason why he wrote this letter. And that is because there was a problem in the church. So this church was concerned for Paul, but there was also a, an internal tension within the church of Philippi. And that is that this church had a problem with unity, with getting along, or one way to put it, with infighting. It's a sad reality. Like we should be a church, a body that should be fighting the devil and his lies and share the gospel outward. And so often, instead, we're wasting our time fighting one another, refusing to forgive one another, refusing to love one another, carry one another's burden. So we, but... There's nothing new under the sun because this is what has happened in the early church. So it's really like give up on your dream church in one sense, right? There isn't something like a church that will never disappoint you because even in this church, there was problems. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. It says, I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So, Judea and Syntyche didn't see eye to eye. They didn't agree in the Lord. They didn't sit around the same fire. Okay, now whatever the issue was, you can imagine how this issues might have looked like as well, like, but probably not talking much to one another because of built up bitterness or anger or unresolved conflict. Maybe a friendly wave and then quickly evading one another at the door. Or simply just ignoring one another, right? Just, I'm not going to talk to you. So Paul encourages, says, no, agree in the Lord. And so Paul writes this letter for the church to, to, to encourage their unity, but also through the Holy Spirit inspiring this letter to all of us. We should agree in the Lord. We should have the same mind, the same spirit, and the same attitude and Paul uses, in chapter 2, he goes to the heart of where we should look to find our unity. And he goes to Christmas, the birth of Christ. He says, look at what Jesus did. He was God and he became a man. He gave it up. He emptied himself. That's what we should do for one another. We should empty ourselves. We should lay down our rights and our privileges and our desire to be right to to be able to humbly serve one another. Christ is the supreme example of humble service. And that's what Christians are. And that's, so it's, it's really an attitude that builds unity. And it's really pride that destroys unity. So those two things. That's the true Christmas spirit. right? So that's the title of the sermon. Is The true Christmas spirit is what Jesus did. He emptied himself, self-emptying, self-denying, and sacrificial love. For other people's happiness and other people's good. So that's what we should have as Christians and we should follow Christ and celebrate Christ. Notice how Paul really focuses on unity in chapter 1 verse 27. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Okay, so how do we live worthy of the gospel? 
He says, so that whether I come and see you or absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Do you see the point? So Paul says, we have one gospel. We should, we should not be standing against one another. We should be standing side by side. Look at verse 30. He says, we must engage in the same conflict that you saw I had. We should be striving for the gospel. There's a conflict happening. And then chapter 2, verse 2, he really highlights this unity when he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full, full accord and of one mind. You see what's Paul's emphasis from verse 127 up until 2.11 is there must be unity. We must, we must have a new mindset, a new way of thinking that is like Christ. Verse 5 is really where he wants to go. He says, have this mind among yourselves. So when we say the spirit of Christmas, I really mean the mindset, the attitude of Christmas, which was in Christ. The mindset of, I'm not going to let the sun go down on my anger. I'm going to pursue unity. I am going to forgive. I am going to fight for the unity of the spirit. And Paul does that in three ways. First, he gives them a reminder. Secondly, a command. And thirdly, an example. And we will actually do the example as we go in detail in verse 511 next week. But so Paul begins by giving them a, a reminder in verse 1. Look at verse 1. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. So it's interesting, he puts it in the if statements. And that functions as a reminder. He's he asking these Christians to really consider how these things are true. It's like, can you just pause and think about your own life and think, is there any encouragement you have tasted in Christ? Is there any participation in the Spirit that you have experienced? Is there any um, affection and sympathy that you have felt from God? So it's really, saying, it's really a rhetorical question. He doesn't want you to answer it. He's like saying, surely there is some encouragement. Are there any? So it's also like almost like a subtle test as well to test yourself. Have you? Tasted the comfort of Christ, the encouragement of Christ, and the, the, the fellowship of the Spirit. But he doesn't want to discourage you. Because I know there are many believers who are overly critical of their spiritual lives. And when they hear these tests, like any encouragement, any, they, they very quickly deny their faith, their faith and their salvation and say, well, I haven't tasted that in the last week. I haven't felt the comfort of Christ last week, so I must not be saved. But... That would be a misreading of verse 1 because of the word any. He doesn't say, do you experience these things all the time? But he's asking, have you experienced this at any time? So it's a reminder. It's not meant to cause you to doubt your salvation. He's trying to remind you of the blessings of Christ and what you have tasted and, and experienced. You see, if he, if he has said, if you have to experience this all the time, he would have actually had to admit that the Christian life is one-dimensional. It must always go well. It must always be sunrise and, and roses. But by saying the word any, he actually gives room for the natural ups and downs of sanctification. There are times when we do feel the love of Christ, the grace of God and the fellowship of the Spirit in greater ways. But he's trying to help us think, is there any of that? Can you remember that? So let's quickly go through these blessings, and there are four specifically. Notice the first blessing he mentions. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ. That word encouragement is the Greek word paraklesis, 
which, where we get the word, which means to call to your side, to walk besides. It's where um, the Holy Spirit, when, it's, when he's translated as the helper, the comforter, parakletos, walking beside us. So Paul says, dear Christian, do you know any comfort that Christ has brought to you in his presence of walking beside you? You see, being a Christian is not just the high privilege of following Christ. It is also the amazing privilege of Christ walking beside us. So it's not just like us giving ourselves to Christ. It's Christ walking with us. Him being with us. We walk this life believing Matthew 28 verse 20. The, the, the Great Commission when he says at the very end, Behold, I am what? I am with you. Even until the end of the age. Have you tasted that at any moment in your life? Christ being near you. Christ being walking beside you. That's the first blessing. The second blessing is in verse, the rest of it, he says, have you experienced any comfort from love? Again, the Greek word there for comfort means a consoling word. The idea is the Lord himself coming close to us and whispering in our ears words of encouragement, love, and counsel. Have you experienced that? God's whispers of love in your ear. Have you experienced that comfort from his love? Remember, that love for you is not based on your performance, but based on his love for you from eternity past. 2 Timothy 1.9, God saved us, called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us when? In Christ Jesus, before the ages began. This is an eternal love. He already knew you before he created Adam and Eve. He loved you. 1 John 4 verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God. You see, it's not, this is not love that we love God because we don't. That's not natural. We don't seek God. God seeks us, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is a love beyond our imagination. He loved you before you were born. He knew your sins in full. He knew you would be listening to this sermon right now before he created the world. And he loves you. And this is the kind of love that doesn't just begin your salvation, but ends it, finishes it. Look at 1 verse 6, the famous verse. I'm sure of this, that he who began the good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Have you tasted any of that comfort in your life? Of that love that he has for you? Here's a third blessing. Verse 1. He says, any participation in the Spirit. Literally, any fellowship in the Spirit. Have you had any share in his work in your life? Remember, it's really the Holy Spirit's work to pour out God's love in our hearts. Romans 5 verse 5. It says, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Have you experienced that? God's love been poured out into your heart by the Holy Spirit. Have you experienced what the Spirit does to lead you to kill your sin, humble you? Have you experienced the Holy Spirit leading you to special seasons of prayer, praying for somebody else? Have you experienced the Spirit bringing specific Bible verses to your memory and to your mind at the right time? 
Have you experienced any fellowship? Remember, it's not every time, all the time, but has this been a, an experience you had? Think it through and answer it. Is there any fellowship in the Spirit? Here's an amazing observation to make. The first three blessings is the blessings of the Trinity. First one, the encouragement of Christ, the comfort of God's love and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So Paul's saying, have you experienced the Trinity? Have you tasted that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit loves you? It's really amazing how close this is to the, to the famous benediction in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. It says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. Remember, benediction is meant to say, may these grace go with you as you leave this place, as you close your Bible, as you leave, as you leave the comfort zone of church and enter into the discomfort zone of the messy life we live. May the encouragement of Christ, may the love of God, may the fellowship of the Spirit go with you, be with you. That's really God's desire for you. He wants you to experience these things in your normal life. So have you tasted these things? And the last one, the last one, I think that the, the next two phrases should be taken together. The last blessing is in verse 1, have you experienced any affection and any sympathy? These two words communicate a deep inner feeling for someone. And a, a, a passionate affection for someone. Tender compassion for people's misery. And literally, the Greek word means bowel movements. So it's that feeling you feel when you're, you feel so compassionate, it feels like your stomach is turning inside out. It's the kind of feeling I feel when my one-year-old boy is learning to walk, kind of fumbling and stumbling along the way and laughing his head off. It has a physical effect on my body. Like, I love him so much. Come here, right? Or it's the feeling when I see him fall and cry. Again, a physical bodily reaction running to him. Now, here's the amazing thing. That's how God loves you. Any affection and sympathy. That's how God feels towards us as his children. Remember the parallel? If we who are evil feel these things, how much more does God, your heavenly father, feel those things for you? So remember um, Psalm 103, one of my favorite, favorite Psalms, verse 13 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He knows us. He knows our weaknesses. Yet he has compassion on us. Yes, he feels tender mercy towards us. Yes, he is affectionate on us. So what is Paul doing in verse 1? He's saying, this is a reminder. This is what... The Christian life is supposed to be. He gently lifts up our eyes away from what people has done to you. Remember the context is there's infighting. People are fighting with one another. They don't want to agree. It's like, look away from that and think about what Christ has done for you. What you've experienced in the Trinity. Don't focus so much on what people do to you, but focus on what you have in Christ. I think that's one of the reasons why we struggle to have unity. We are so obsessed with the horizontal level that we forget what we have in Christ. So he says, look at the triune God. Focus on his love for you. Now, of course, there might be some of you listening to me 
that for verse 1 is not a reminder for you. It is completely foreign. You've never tasted any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the Spirit. So for you, verse 1 is not a reminder, it's an invitation. It's an invitation. Do you want these blessings? It's yours if you come to Christ. His hands are open. If you repent and put your complete trust in Jesus, He saves you. Not, not regrettably, not stingily, not hesitatingly, but like the prodigal son and the father, the father runs to, to, this, to the prodigal son. Rejoices, doesn't even let you finish your sentence of repentance. You're forgiven, come. There is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, over 99 who do not need repentance. So that's God's heart. So if you don't know Christ, why don't you call out to him right now? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, even right now. So that's the first thing Paul does. He reminds us. He gives us this wonderful reminder of our blessings in Christ. But now he moves to the command, to the command of verses 2 to 4. So verse 2 says, Therefore, so it's if these things are true, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And before we look at that verse, notice the flow of thought. Paul is saying, he's trying to connect the dots between God's love for us and our love for one another. He's trying to connect the dots. He says, if there is any comfort, any love, um, comfort from love, fellowship and compassion and sympathy in God, that's verse 1, now let that spill over into your relationships with one another, that's verse 2. Don't disconnect those two things. In other words, God wants your heart to be a fountain. As God pours out his love in your heart, he wants that fountain to overflow and spill into your relationship with difficult Christians. <laughs> okay. Christians who make you feel discomfortable. But don't focus on that. Don't focus on how hurt you felt when people gossiped about you. Don't focus on what the brother or sister did or did not do to you, focus on what you have in Christ and therefore pursue unity. Don't allow the devil, your own hurt, your own pain, to split the beautiful bride of Christ. So that's the key. The key is don't be so focused on yourself. Really, that's why we're going to look at verse 3 and 3 and 4. Like The problem is we are too focused on ourselves, but we must be focused on others. But here's the thing, we disconnect those two things. We don't think our relationship with God has anything to do with our relationship with one another. We say, my relationship with God is personal. My relationship with the church and other brothers and sisters is optional. So if you've hurt me, if you've offended me, if you have gossiped about me, I'm out of here. I'm going to serve the Lord alone. Paul says, no, no. If these things are true, now live it out within your relationships. Notice the real effect this has on Paul at verse 2. He says, what? That's actually surprising. He says, complete my joy by being one. That's an interesting way to say. He says, your joy and your unity with one another has a real effect on my joy as a spiritual leader. 
So do you want to make your pastor happy? <laughs> then walk in unity. Serve one another. Love one another. Even the difficult church member and Christian. Or alternatively, do you want to be a burden for your pastor? Do you want to cause him worry and concern? Stay away from church because you cannot forgive someone. Refuse to be part of the church in fellowship because there's someone who has hurt you. No, beloved, if Christ has loved us so much, if the, if the Father has loved us so much, if the Spirit has loved us so much, then be of the same mind. Now, that doesn't mean we should all be left brain or we should all be right brain or like all of you should be clones of, of me. It would be a horrible church. <laughs> okay? Look at all the Rians here or whatever. No, so when he says same mind, it doesn't mean copy and paste our personalities, but rather the best way to say it is we should all have the same mindset. The same mindset, the same way of thinking, the same attitude. We should all have the same priorities, the same goal. And listen to this. Jesus gave us our priority in Matthew 6, 33. He says, but seek secondly the kingdom of God. Oh, wait, what? Uh, sorry. I, what does your Bible say? First, you know, in the context, what does that first refer to? Even above food and clothing. Even above providing for your physical needs. Because the, the rest of the verse says, all these things shall be added to you. In other words, physical needs. Unbelievers cannot make God's kingdom first. They cannot because they have to. They say, if I don't provide my food, if I don't provide my clothing, who will? Who will take care of me? But the Christian says, our God provides for the birds. If he takes care of the birds, if he clothes the lilies of the field, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Why do you worry? Why do you doubt? Why do you be anxious? God will take care of you. So seek first the kingdom of God. That's the mindset Christians should have. We want to radically give our lives, give our money, give our time, give our energy to seek the kingdom first. We say, but what if I die? To die is <laughs> gain. It's like, that's good news. If you die in the pursuit of the kingdom, that's a success. Your reward will be great in heaven. So if you're a missionary and you die on the mission field all alone, praise God. That's amazing. That's the kind of mindset and attitude we should be having. Radical giving, radical serving, radical love for even the most difficult people. But how, how can we do this? What should this mindset look like? Verse 3 to 4. First, put off selfish pride. So one of the key blocks to having the same mindset is selfish pride. So we should put off selfish pride. That's in verse 3. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That's behind every conflict. Pride. Selfishness. Lit and then conceit literally means vain glory, empty glory, a desire to be made much of, to be first. We have a look, we're looking out for our own interests instead of the interests of others. And here's the scary thing about selfish ambition. Selfish ambition can hide behind very good deeds. It's not just the people who are selfish that are screaming and angry and bitter and unforgiving. 
Paul actually gives a potent example of selfish ambition in chapter 1, verse 15. Look at this. Chapter 1, verse 15 of Philippians. It says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of what? Selfish ambition. The same Greek word in verse 3 of chapter 2. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Some preach the true gospel, the true gospel, with selfish ambition in order to afflict Paul in prison, to make his life worse in prison, out of rivalry. Do you see how scary this is? It's possible to do very Christian-like things while being selfish. You can read your Bible and sin. I'm going to outread that brother and sister this year. Like I'm going to... Because I also want to make the Facebook post. I also want to, <laughs> right? I'm going to serve coffee and tea so that others might see me that I'm so humble. We're proud at how humble we are. See the problem there? Or sometimes very overtly sinful things. Like I'm not going to church again because I was hurt. I'm not going to forgive. So whether behind good or, or bad deeds, often selfish ambition is behind that. Empty glory. A me-first attitude, a you-second attitude. Let me give you a personal example, if I may, about how this can look like personally. I've noticed sometimes that I serve my family, not out of love, but out of selfish ambition, doing things like washing the dishes. Sometimes I wash the dishes, not because I love my family or because I love God, because I want to escape my family. I just want 30 minutes of peace. So what do I do? I go wash the dishes. And I know it's selfish because the moment my beautiful children interrupts my washing the dishes, I get very, very angry. I, I'm here because I want to get away from you. Get away from me. <laughs> and here's the wicked thing of that. Often that I've noticed in my heart is I actually think I'm an amazing husband at that moment. So while I'm doing that, being selfish, I think, wow, look at me. While Deborah is drowning under the kids, right? So that's, that's selfish ambition. That's empty glory. God sees right through that. So, so for us is to test ourselves. Where in our lives do we sometimes do very good things, but with the desire of me first? And so instead I've learned by God's grace over a period of sanctification of the ups and downs, to instead ask Deborah, do you want me to wash the dishes now? <laughs> or do you rather want me to play with the kids? You see, now I'm not focused on me, I'm focused on Deborah and the kids. So here's a simple test. A simple test that is often behind every selfish ambition is a I deserve thinking. I deserve. That's, if, you, if you think those thoughts, you can be sure that selfish ambition is very close. I deserve a little me time. I deserve not to be hurt in church. I deserve never to, to be interrupted while I'm pursuing my hobbies. I deserve not to be cut off in traffic while I'm driving. I deserve to be made much of and to be praised. Do you see that? That's selfish ambition and that's empty conceit. The simple, here's a simple definition of pride. It is my happiness at your expense. 
That's pride. I will be happy at your expense. Even if you are miserable, I don't care. I just want to be happy. I will sacrifice you and sacrifice your happiness for mine. So beloved, humble yourself. Do you know what you really deserve? So if you are ever tempted with the I deserve thinking, think this. I deserve hell. Think it at that moment. I deserve nothing except hell. And yet, God has bestowed on me the liberty of breathing. The liberty of feeling the sunshine on my skin. The liberty of living. Just living is mercy. We don't even deserve that. We don't deserve our marriages, our friendships, our relationships. We don't deserve a church. We don't deserve any of this. And yet God gives it to us and he spares us another day that we might seek him and repent. And here's the thing, despite the fact that we deserve nothing but hell, God has given us everything. Everything. So, it, it, so first it humbles you and then it overwhelms you. To show, I deserve nothing but how, and yet God has given me an eternity of joy with him. So now I can endure this trial. I can, I can give up my right, my privilege in this moment and serve because it's okay. God has given me life. Which leads us to the second part. So it's not just put off. So if you put off um, selfish ambition, selfish pride. But now put on humble service. This is the counterpart of pride in verse 3 to 4. He, he gives it to us. He says, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So the attitude of a Christian is to count. That Greek, the word there means consider and think of somebody or regard somebody more important than yourself. Think of them higher than you, a higher rank. And we do that practically by doing verse 4 that says, look each of you to other people's interests. That's how it looks like. And again, we see the supreme example of this very attitude in Jesus in verse 5, when he says, have this mind or this mindset among yourselves, which is also in Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So the attitude of Christ was he actually was equal to God. If there's anybody that could stand on his rights, that could say, I deserve something, it's Jesus, right? And what did he do? He did not grasp onto that. He did not cling onto his position of glory, of his position of authority. But what did he do instead in verse 7? But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Isn't that amazing? He had that awesome glory and position. He deserves all honor and all worship. And he gave up everything. He emptied himself. Not by losing something, but by adding something. He added a second nature to himself. And that itself is a very humbling thing. He subjected himself to the life of a human. Suffering, crying, mocking, mis misunderstandings. He, he, he subjected himself. You see, this is the attitude that Christ had. He gave up his privilege, his rights, for the sake of others. He counted God and he counted us more important than himself by dying for us, by serving us. Jesus is the supreme example of verses 3 to 4, of how to have 
uh, to humble yourself. Did you know that these are one of the two attributes that Jesus ascribes to himself? Matthew 11, listen to Matthew 11, 28, very famous. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, humble. I am humble of heart. Jesus was worthy of all that worship and obedience and submission. Yes, yet he did not live like that. He did not stand but counted others more significant. So if this is what Jesus has done for us, if he was worthy of that, how much more are we to give that, to live like that in our relationships with other people? But did you also know that the, the world says exactly the opposite? So we should also acknowledge something that although this is the command that we have to have this mindset of having others more important than ourselves, the world, we live and we swim in the sea of a culture that says exactly the opposite. It says, treat yourself more important than other people. Isn't that why we hear? How can you love others if you can complete this sentence? You don't love yourself. You need to learn to first focus on your needs before you can focus on other people's needs. Do you see how that's exactly the opposite of what verse 3 and 4 says? Exactly the opposite. It's not you first, it is God first, others second, you third. And so here we have the biblical definition of humility. So if pride is my happiness at your expense, what is humility? Your happiness at my expense. That's humility. And that's exactly what Christ did. But some of you might be listening and say, but wait a minute. Doesn't the Bible say we should love our neighbor as we love ourselves? Doesn't that mean we are to first learn to love ourselves before we can love other people? The short answer is no. That's not what it means. <laughs> okay. Here's the longer answer. That's a classic example of believing something beforehand and finding a Bible verse to fit that. What is the focus of that verse? What is the actual command? The command is not to love yourself. It's to love your neighbor. The focus is not on you. But what do we do with that verse? We turn it around and we make it say exactly the opposite. It's about me. I need to love me. No, it's not about you. It's about your neighbor. He says, love your neighbor in the same way you love yourself. In other words, Jesus assumes you already love yourself. He says, in the same way, you take very careful, you take care of your personal needs. Think about when you're hungry. What do you, what do, you do when you're hungry? Some of us become hangry. It's like, all life must stop. I must eat. Right? What do you do when you are tired? You shift things, you, <laughs> you sleep, you, you make sure that your needs are met. So this is not speaking about self-esteem the way we commonly think about it. This is thinking about we are so naturally taking care of our physical needs. And in the same way you passionately and zealously love yourself, do that with others. Seek to fulfill other people's needs. You, the problem is not that you don't love yourself. The problem is you are too focused on yourself. Be more fo be focused on God and be focused on other people. 
Here's the best one verse summary of that command. So the best one verse summary of love your neighbor as yourself is the golden rule. Matthew 7 verse 12. Listen to Matthew 7 verse 12. Whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. You see what the, that's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. How do you like other people to treat you? You like it when people ignore you, gossip about you, refuse to forgive you? No, of course not, right? You don't like that. Now don't do that with others. Do the same things to other people. You see what the problem is? The problem is not that you love yourself too little. It is that you're not putting yourself in other people's shoes. You're not focusing on other people. So that's what this verse means. In fact, Paul says one of the, the signs of the end times in 2 Timothy 3 is that people will be lovers of self. That's one of, the, that's one of the characteristics of the world. People will be lovers of self rather than lovers of God. So this is why this is so important. Pride is my happiness at your expense. Humility is your happiness at my expense. So look at Christ. Imagine if he used this mentality of first taking care of his own needs before he takes care of other people. Would he have ever gone to the cross? If he had to first make sure that he is secure, that he is safe, that his life is, 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 is everything covered. No, he would have never died if he had that me first attitude. No, he had a God first and other first. So here's the point. I want you, if you write anything down, I want you to write this down. Trade in your self-esteem for Christ-esteem. Trade in your self-esteem for Christ-esteem. Life is not about you. It's about Christ. You were not created to satisfy your own needs, but to live for His glory, even being willing up to give up your life. And again, if you die, that's good. That's okay. So the problem with the modern self-esteem is the first half of the word. There's too much self in it. I love this quote. Um, I think it's C.S. Lewis. I'm not exactly sure. He gave this famous saying. He says, so it, the, the problem, we should not think less of ourselves as if now we should have a low self-esteem. That's not what it means. Not think less of yourself, but think of ourselves less. As in, as in less often. And here's the irony, here's the paradox and the irony of this. People who are obsessed with self-esteem have the lowest self-esteem because they're always focused on how they are performing, how they are measuring up with other people. They always have to look a certain way and, and the way they feel about themselves and they become so depressed because they are so focused on themselves. And the irony is when you give up on that and you focus on Christ's esteem, you love and adore Christ for loving you first and you humbly serve other people, you have a high self-esteem because you're not thinking of yourself. You're not so caught up with how you look and what you do. and Because that doesn't matter to you. You just want to serve Christ. You just want to serve other people. And the moment you do that, you have joy. So that's the irony of this. Don't think less of yourself. Think of yourself less, less often. And then as you worship Christ, as you receive his encouragement, the comfort of love, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the cup will be full to give. We love, why? Because he first loved us. You only need God to satisfy you. You don't need anything else. Just God.
And that's the true Christmas spirit. Your happiness, that's my expense. I will serve you. I will give up my privileges and my rights so that you might see the same glory that I have seen in God. That you might see a picture of the cross in me. That you, if you look at me, you'll see a man on the cross that gave up his life for other people. But allow me to make one clarification. And this, and then we're almost done. So, of course, this doesn't mean that you shouldn't have boundaries in your life with people. You shouldn't take care of your physical body. We are creatures of dust. We need sleep. We need a hobby. We need time of recreation and times of play to refresh ourselves. So we need those things because we're human. But here's the key difference between the common self-esteem and what I've just said is that the focus is different. The focus in the world is often that these are my needs and I will kill you if you get in the way of them. In other words, you're really worshipping yourself and idols and the moment anything interrupts those things, your sleep, so that's why children are such an idol revealer. <laughs> okay? It's like the moment you disturb my sleep, you disturb my hobbies and my free time and my me time, I will get angry at you. Right? So the world focuses on those things and they worship them while the Christian takes care of their bodies and they pursue hobbies of play and they enjoy that in order to glorify God and serve other people. So they do that because they know they need it. And if I don't do that, I will not be useful to anybody else. But the focus is not you. So when somebody interrupts your sleep and your, your hobbies and your recreation and your time, you realize you don't even deserve uninterrupted sleep. You only deserve God's wrath. And then we, not, we respond not with anger, but with patience, with self-control and giving ourselves up. So even in our hobbies, even in the, the times we do spend on ourselves, we do with the attitude of and in obedience to 1 Corinthians 10.31. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink, and then Paul says, okay, if, if I've missed something, or whatever you do, reading a novel, sleeping, okay, if you do whatever you do, do that to the glory of yourself. Right? Is everybody still awake? <laughs> no, it's not what it says. Not to your own glory, to the glory of God. So you take care of yourself in order to serve other people. Here's a practical thing that means. So if your hobbies clash with your family, if your hobbies robs um, and hurts other people, stop your hobby. Do something else. Find something different. So we're not clinging to our hobbies at all costs. No, we're doing hobbies in order to fulfill and satisfy other people. So beloved, this is the true Christmas spirit. Christ becoming a man. Humbled, humbled himself to death on the cross for our happiness. He gave up, he, our, he was focused on our happiness at his expense. And that's what we now can do. And counting other people more significant than ourselves as we give ourselves for others. May we all have that mindset and that Christmas spirit. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, we acknowledge this afternoon that we are so prone to be obsessed with ourselves and too focused on ourselves. Well, please forgive us for our selfish ambition, hiding even behind very good deeds and sometimes very good things that we do for others, and but with a selfish motive. Father, you see our hearts and you see right through us. And Lord, even despite the pride that is in us, you have atoned for our pride. You have atoned for our selfishness by nailing your son on the cross. That's how much you hate our pride, hate our sin. And that's also how passionately you love us, Lord. Oh Lord, I pray that we would experience in a greater way this one and the encouragement of Christ, the comfort of love, the fellowship of the Spirit and the sympathy and affection of God for us, that we would revel in that, that we would satisfy our hearts in you and who you are for us in Christ, so that we might lay down our lives willingly and freely for our brothers and sisters in Christ and also for other people who do not know you. They might see a picture of Christ and the cross. Oh Lord, we thank you for the Sunday and I pray that we would apply these things to our lives and live and do everything we do for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name.